would entitle this chapter, Mission Incomparable. You've heard of Mission Impossible. This is Mission Incomparable. This is the details of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas setting out on a missionary journey. And, and one of the things that we see in this chapter is... We see the joys of ministering for the Lord. We see the pain of ministering for the Lord. And yet in all of that, there is no life that can compare to a life that is placed in the hands of God and to see what God can do through that life. And that's what we have here in Acts chapter 13. We have men and women who have committed themselves, consecrated themselves, and placed their lives in the hands of God. And it's just amazing what God does with those lives. That same thing is true today. If you and I would simply place our lives in God's hands, it would be a life incomparable. It would be unbelievable. Yes, there will be joy. Yes, there will be pain. Yes, there will be challenges and obstacles, but there is no life on earth like that of a human being that places themselves in the hands of the living God. I want to first go to the first three verses here, which sort of sets up what's about to happen here. And there's some great principles here, even in these first three verses. It says, now there were these prophets and teachers... In the church at Antioch, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius a Cyrenian, Menaean, who was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch from childhood, and Saul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, they sent them off. Several things. First of all, you will notice the multiplicity of teachers in the church at Antioch. Churches that have multiplicities of teachers are blessed churches. <laughs> that, that's how we get the Word of God taught to us in many different places and ways. And I just want to say at this point, one of the reasons why I'm asking God to give us a place of our own is not just so we can have a building. It's so that we can provide more ministry, more instruction of God's Word, offer more classes, and utilize the great teachers that we have here at this church. Because we have some awesome teachers who really don't get the opportunity to teach very much. And yet, if we had our own building and didn't have to rent out rooms and stuff like that, we could offer so much more. One of my goals and visions for our church one day is to have our own Bible Institute as part of our ministry, you see. And this is why the church at Antioch was blessed. Because they had multiple people teaching. You know, we've got folks like, you know, like Brian and Pastor Chad and Nathan and Stephen 
And in, in gals, we've got Marcia and Jill and Lisa and others who teach. And, and our church is blessed to have all these teachers. And you'll also notice something else, that this ministry took place, verse 1, in the church. It's okay to be involved in other stuff, out, but God calls His people to minister to each other in the church. And that's where we need to focus our ministry and our strengths and our gifts and our talents. Now notice verse 2. While they were already serving the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, I got something more for you. That's a very important principle. There are Christians who are dead in the water. They are idle. They're not doing anything. And they're sitting there going, God, why don't you... Why don't you ask me to do something for you? Why don't you get me going and, and, and lay something on me, God? And the principle throughout Scripture is God looks for those who are already doing something. And then He taps them on the shoulder and asks them to do something else or something more. God doesn't look for those who are idle, who are doing nothing. God is already looking for those who are already serving. These people were already serving the Lord. But God, because they were faithful in the little things, because they were already obedient to what God was asking them to do, God was now going to give them more responsibility and more ministry. You want God to use you more? Just start doing something. And do it faithfully. And you will find after a time that while you are in the midst of serving, God's probably going to call on you to do something even greater. Because that's the way God works. It has been said that it's easier to direct a ship in motion than one that's standing still. And that's the way God works with us. God looks for those who are already serving Him in some capacity and then he wants to lay something else on them. Notice also, while they were serving the Lord. Yes, they were serving people. Yes, they were serving their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were ministering to, to them. But ultimately, all service is to be done for and to the Lord. Listen to these verses out of the book of Colossians to Christians. Whatever you are doing... Work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people. Because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Serve the Lord Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verses 24 and 25. If we start serving and our focus is that we're serving people rather than the Lord, things are going to get shaky real quick. What we do and why we do it and all of that has to be bound up and centered in the Lord. They were serving the Lord. Notice also that not only were they serving, but at this season they were fasting. Why do Christians fast? Why do they withhold from, say, a meal or two or three or, or whatever? Why do Christians do that? For the most part in the Bible, it was done because there was something that they urgently were seeking God for and, and God about. And that's why they fasted. It, it was sort of a way to sort of go up to that next level of focus and say for these couple of days or these couple of hours or forever how long God leads you to fast, I am seeking you, God, urgently and fervently for something. And that's what they were doing here. 
And I believe in the context, what they were fasting and seeking God urgently for was they wanted to know, God, what else do you have for us? Where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? They couldn't wait for God to show them what's the next thing because they knew God said, I want to take this good news to the world. I want you to go out from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they were just waiting for God's direction as to where do we go, God? What do we do? And so they were fasting as well. And notice that this was under the the direction not of people. This was totally under the direction of the leading of the Holy Spirit. It says, while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now, we don't know exactly how he communicated this. Did he communicate this through one of the teachers and and prophets in the church? Did he communicate this inwardly? We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit said this or directed these men to do this, but the direction was clear. The Holy Spirit was the one behind it all. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart from these five teachers in the church at Antioch, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. A couple things here. First of all, the word set apart not only mean that God was appointing them to something, but in in the meaning of these words is the idea of limitation. I've talked to, to you about this before. In other words, let me say it this way. Before someone can say yes to the call of God on their life, they have to say no to other things that separate them from that call. And that's what it means to set apart. In other words, if I'm going to be available or even desiring and willing to go after what God wants me to do in my life, that means I've got to say no to what I want. That means I've got to say no to what other people want. That means I've got to say no to other things to narrow the focus of my life and focus my life down on what is God calling me to do. And that's really about limiting myself and narrowing my focus and being able to say no to other things so that I can say yes to the very best things. It's learning, as we've talked about too, to say no to good things so that I can do the best things. That's what it means to be set apart. And then notice the Holy Spirit set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work That's a dirty word even in churches nowadays. Work? We don't want to work. We want to serve the Lord, but but we don't want it to be work. We, We don't want it to be hard. We don't want to put any labor or effort into it. But if we're going to minister for the Lord, yeah, it's rewarding. But it's work. In fact, The word here means in contrast to anything less than work. We've got to be willing to work. And not only that, but if you go back up to verse 2, the word serving there, while they were serving, literally means to work at a cost. In other words, too, there's got to be a willingness to sacrifice. Now, anything that you and I give up, if you will... To live for God and serve Him, we get back 
ten times more than that from God. In, in blessing and in fulfillment and satisfaction, not necessarily material things, but we gain so much more. God always outgives. We can never outgive God. And yet when God calls us to minister for him, we've got to realize he's not calling us to a life of ease. He's not calling us as Christians to that which, you know, just fits into our little thing and we don't have to put any effort or, or, or energy or time or blood or sweat or tears into it. If we're going to do something great for a great God, then it's going to cost us something and there's going to be some work involved. Are we willing to work? And then it says in verse 3, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them. They commissioned them. They, they were showing their pledge of support and they sent them off. And here go Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul sent out by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they began to preach the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now they also had John as their assistant. When they had crossed over the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. The words false prophet literally mean one who plays a part. Tying it in with even Sunday's message, here's a person who is pretending. Here's a person in which there is no reality, no genuineness, no sincerity. They're just playing a part, if you will. And the Bible says that he was with, verse 7, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent, a very learned, well-educated man. And the proconsul had summoned or invited Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. He craved, he desired to understand, not just to hear it, but the words here mean he wanted to comprehend, he wanted to understand the word of God. Here was a man who was searching. Here was a man who was open to the word of God and to having a relationship with God. But you'll notice something here. Just like with Paul and Barnabas, when you and I set out to minister and work for the Lord and get out there and be a light and shine and all of that, we're always going to encounter opposition. Always. Throughout the book of Acts, one of the things that we see is the church triumphant, the church marching on. Jesus saying, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet there are challenges and obstacles one right after the other. Because God wants to teach his people, look, I never told you that when you follow me, there will be no challenges or obstacles. What I did tell you was I will be with you through the challenges and obstacles and I will help you get through every challenge and obstacle. They will not stop you. If they stop you, it's because you stop you. I stop myself. It's not because God says, well, there's a challenge or an obstacle. Well, you can't go any further. Throw your hands up and give up. That's what people have done throughout history instead of placing their lives in the hands of God and seeing mission incomparable. I mean, you think about the nation of Israel. God promised them, I'll give you that land. You just have to trust me and believe in me. They sent the spies in. The spies come back all afraid and terrified. Oh, we can't go into the land. There's giants in the land. Did God not say he would be with you? God didn't say there wouldn't be challenges or obstacles. But God said every battle 
you'll win if you follow me and do what I ask you to do. Because the battle's the Lord's. But see, they didn't trust. They didn't believe. They weren't willing to place their, themselves in God's hands. So the obstacles and the challenges in their way became walls that they just threw it up and that's it. And gave up. And what God wants us to see through the book of Acts is there will always be challenges and obstacles in our way in life. But with God, we can overcome, we can rise above, we can get through any challenge or obstacle in our way. And that's exactly what happened here. Because notice as we go on what happened. The magician, verse 8, Alemus, for that is the way his name is translated, opposed or resisted them, trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He literally was trying to get in between Paul and Barnabas, trying to bring this man to God, to the Word of God, and to faith in God. We're always going to have that. There's going to be people who try to get in between those of us who are trying to reach people for Christ and those who are wanting to know more about Christ, be they demonic or human. Now, obviously, Saul had special gifts and special insight and discernment. And obviously here, too, the Bible says that Saul was filled with the Spirit And notice because he was filled with the Spirit in verse 9 and had this tremendous discernment and insight, what he could bring out about this magician, this false prophet. Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at him. The words mean he was able to look truly into this person and see where they were at. You ever had somebody be able to do that to you? They were looking at you and you you felt like they were really looking into you and and that they could tell what was really bothering you or up with you or whatever. They had that ability or have you had people do that to you? That's exactly what Paul was doing here. He was able to look into this man and see where he really was to see that that he was just playing a part and he was pretending and notice the words of Paul here. He stared straight at him and it said, You who are full of all deceit and all wrongdoing, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Whoa. <laughs> I mean, he just laid him out. Basically, what Saul, Paul was saying at this point is, Get out of my way. This man is interested in God. This man is craving and desiring to hear the word of God. And you're trying to mess this up. Get out of my way. Now look, verse 11. The hand of the Lord is against you. And you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mistiness and darkness came over him. Sort of apropos, considering this man was walking in spiritual darkness. Now he's walking in physical darkness. And he went around seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, remember back... I'll just flip back here real quick. You don't have to turn there. 
Back in chapter 11, I wanted to contrast the fact that Paul says here, the hand of the Lord is against you in chapter 13, verse 11, with what it says in chapter 11, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Boy, there's a contrast. The followers of Christ in chapter 11 had the hand of God with them. His help, His support, His agency. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. How important that is. How that builds confidence in our life to know that the hand of the Lord is with us. How bad is it to know the hand of the Lord is against me? All that God is... All that God, all the resources God has are not for me now. They're against me. That's where this man found himself because he was on the wrong side of God. He was trying to prevent the working of God in this proconsul's life. And then notice this amazing statement in verse 12. Then when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Because he was greatly astounded. Here's my paraphrase. He was blown away. That's a good way to say that. And if you look it up in the Greek, you can get that from that. He was blown away at the teaching about the Lord. Don't miss that. He wasn't blown away by what Paul said to the magician. He wasn't blown away by what he was experiencing and seeing. I mean, I'm sure that that made an impact on him. But notice that the primary thing that astounded him, that astonished him, and that amazed him was the teaching about Jesus. When Paul and and Barnabas were able to tell this man that God left the glories of heaven and became a human being, and died on a cross, and took our sin upon Himself, and rose from the dead, and all of this, that's what astounded this man. That God would do that? That that Jesus would love us that much? That He would do that? And that He would forgive me of my sin? That's what astonished the man. It wasn't the miracles that he was seeing. It was the teaching about Jesus that astounded him. Oh, that that would be true today. That people, instead of getting so blown away by experiences, would be more blown away by the teaching about Jesus. To consider what Jesus, the Son of God, has done for every human being. That should be what amazes us. Isn't that even what Jesus sort of reminds his followers of when he says, when he sends the the guys out with the power to be able to cast out demons and do miracles and stuff, and they come back and they're like, Jesus, man, even the demons obey us, and we're able to do all these miracles. And Jesus says, that's great. But you know what's even better? That your names are written in the book of life. That's what should really excite you. Not not the power to do miracles, not the power to cast out demons. What should really be the source of your joy more than anything else is that your names are written in the book of life and that you know me as your personal Savior. Folks, if we could grab that and get up with that every day, it would transform how we start the day and even how we move through the day. 
If we start every day getting up out of bed going, I'm a child of the King. I know Jesus. My sins are forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. I have hope. I've been justified. What a way to start the day. And to be astounded and amazed and astonished every day that Jesus loves me. Maybe it'd be corny for some, but every once in a while I wake up in the morning and I just sing that little chorus, Jesus loves me to myself. That never gets old. I've sung that since I was a child in Sunday school. But just hearing those words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That should always astound us and amaze us. Verse 13. Then Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll come back to the importance of this in two chapters. But mark that, if you will, in your mind. John Mark deserted them at this point. Moving on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if you have any message of exhortation for the people, speak it. Really? You ever known a preacher that turns down an opportunity to speak? That's basically, hey, preachers, you got something to say? Of course we do. So the Bible says, Paul stood up, gestured with his hand and said, men of Israel and you Gentiles who fear God, listen. And beginning in verse 17 of chapter 13, Paul gives a short summary of the history of the nation of Israel. All that God has done for the nation of Israel. We're not going to take the time to read this summary of the history of Israel, but I want to draw your attention to where Paul is trying to draw their attention. That through everything God did through the Old Testament, it was all a setup, if you will, to focus on the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what it was all about. It was all about that. So that's why he says in verse 23, From the descendants of this man, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as He promised. Everything that God did in the Old Testament found its fulfillment, if you will, in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And notice Paul says, God brought Jesus to you. He led you right to Him. He brought you to Him. It wasn't like they had to grope around going, where's the Messiah? Where's Jesus? No. Everything the Old Testament talked about. The Old Testament told the Jews when the Messiah would come, approximately. Told them where he would be born, Bethlehem, Ephrata. Told them all these things. And that's why many in Israel were looking for the Messiah when Jesus was born. But they were a minority. They were not the majority. The majority missed God coming to earth. In fact, Paul points this out. Notice in verse 27, he says, For the people who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him. The words mean to be ignorant of, not to know him. God came to earth. And in spite of all the setup that God did in the Old Testament 
telling them exactly who the Messiah would be, how they could, how they could understand who he was, how they could know when he would arrive, how they could uh, you know, tell that he was the Messiah through all these things. After God did all of that, they missed it. There's a warning there for us that we truly get the intent of what God is saying in His Word and not miss something because we're not sensitive or looking for it. And Paul goes on to say, they fulfilled the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath by condemning them. Every Sabbath the Scriptures were read. They should have known Jesus was coming and where they could find Him. And yet it was these wise men that lived thousands of miles away that were able to find him, even though his own people who were right there missed him. But notice verse 30. After they killed him, Paul says, but God raised him from the dead. Two of the most important words in all the word of God is, but God. <laughs> because it, it, it's really, again, the whole book of Acts. It's like, here's what man did, but God. But God has the last word. But God is the one who defines it. Don't, don't think that man has the last word. But God is always after everything else. And that's a powerful thing. Yes, they murdered Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Yes, I don't know what you're dealing with, what you're going through, what challenges or obstacles, but every one at last one of us has to get to a point that no matter what the circumstances of our life are or what challenges or obstacles lie in our way, we say, but God. Because when we bring God into the equation, everything can change because nothing is impossible with God. And that's what Paul wanted his people to see. So then he goes down through and talks about how Jesus was seen by those who followed him and all of that. And then he gets down to verse 38 where he says, and here's really the reason why Jesus has come. He said, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this one forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Release from bondage and imprisonment. All your sins have been wiped away, thrown into the depth of the sea. As we talked about when we were in the early chapters of Romans, it's like every bad thing I've ever done was wiped clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. There, there's nothing on my account negative anymore when I accept Christ as my Savior. My sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. But God doesn't stop there. Notice he says in verse 39, And by this one, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which the law of Moses could not justify you. And as we again talked about in the early chapters of our series in Romans, not only does God remove everything from my account that was wrong, but then God credits my account with His righteousness. So that now, I don't walk around with trying to live up to a righteousness that I can't live up to. But God gives me another gift. He gives me His righteousness. For he, knew, for he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Christ is our 
righteousness, our justification. So not only does God in Christ take away everything negative, but gives me everything positive to stand before Him and to be declared right before Him. But notice what Paul says to them in verse 40. Watch out. Because what is spoken about the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers or despisers, be amazed and perish. For notice, God says, I am doing a work in your days. I am busy accomplishing things. A work you would never believe, even if someone tells you, but they're missing it. And how sad today, there are even Christians who sit around going, what's God doing? I don't see God doing anything. Where's God at work? I want to see what God's doing. And they're totally missing that God is busy all the time accomplishing great things, but they're blind to it. Just like the people were in Paul's day. Like God's right in front of them. He's working all the time. He's busy accomplishing amazing things and changing and transforming lives and all of this. And they're missing it. And I think the warning is that, again, we wouldn't get so locked into our little focus of where we're trying to take our life that we miss what God is doing and what God wants to do with us. Calling us to place our lives in His hands and live a mission incomparable beyond anything that we could ever imagine or think. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people were urging them to speak about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and were persuading them to continue in the grace of God. Here's the next important point. Many people think, I know I need the grace of God to get to God, to come to God. For by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But many Christians don't realize that the message of the Word of God is that grace isn't just what brings me to God in the first place. It's what keeps me connected to God through my whole earthly life. I'm not just saved by grace. I live by grace. And Paul is saying, he's persuading them, hold on to the grace of God. Never let go of God's grace. That's why Paul could say later on in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because his grace is the supernatural enablement that God gives us beyond what we could ever do ourselves. And that's how we are able to live at a whole different level. Not because we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps as many people want to do, but by relying and depending on the grace of God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's what Paul says here. Always hold fast to the supernatural enablement of God. Then you've got to understand, as a pastor, I love this next verse. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city assembled together to hear the word of the Lord. Wow. You know, people gather large crowds for a lot of things throughout history. But do you see many people gathering together to hear the Word of God? Thousands upon thousands of people? Nah. They'll go to a show. They'll go to a sporting event. They'll go to a concert. There's a lot of different things that thousands of people will gather, even Christians, 
But say, hey, next week, we're going to teach the Word of God for an hour. Chirp, 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 chirp. Somehow that doesn't excite people like I think it should. But when the Jews saw the crowds, verse 45, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying by reviling him, speaking evil of him. Now again, here's this pattern. God moves, God begins to work, and there's the enemy. Resisting, opposing, at every turn. Folks, that's the way it is. That's why in ministry, when God calls us to minister and serve, and God calls every Christian to minister and serve for Him, we've got to get strong and maintain our spiritual strength because being in service and ministry for the Lord is not easy. It's not for the fragile. It's not for the faint of heart. It's hard. Because we are finding ourselves in spiritual battles every day. And as God begins to use us to touch other people's lives and influence them and to gain spiritual ground ourselves and to help other people gain spiritual ground, we are going to be in the bullseye of the enemy's attack. Over and over again. And people may speak evil of you even though all you're trying to do is share the Word of God or live for God. And yet they will turn on you and they will speak evil of you. But notice Paul and Barnabas' response. Paul and Barnabas, verse 46, replied courageously. The word means with boldness born from assurance. The reason they were able to be so bold and courageous is because they had such confidence in what they were doing and what they were saying. There was such an assurance. If I don't really know what I believe and why I believe it, then when I get resistance, I'm going to back into my shell like a turtle. But if I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt at what I believe and why I believe it, then when someone challenges or opposes me, I'm just going to keep on going. Because we know the truth. And as we talked about Sunday, truth always corresponds to reality. And just because the majority doesn't believe something's true doesn't mean it's reality. And that's what was happening here. Paul and Barnabas knew what they were teaching and they knew it was true. And they were convinced of it. And they had such strong spiritual convictions that in spite of the pushback, they kept on going. But there is a a limit to that. We're going to get to that in closing tonight. Because notice what Paul says in verse 46. It was necessary to speak the word of God to you first Since you reject it or refuse it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. By the way, I think this is a great verse that that totally teaches against that God has certain people picked out for salvation and certain people not picked out for salvation. Because here Paul's basically saying, it was your responsibility. You rejected it. You could have accepted it. Paul didn't say, well, now let me see. Were you one of the elect or not? I'm not sure because if you're not one of the elect, then it doesn't really matter. That's not what Paul says at all, does he? He says, you had an opportunity to accept this word. You refused it. You rejected it. You did not deem yourself worthy of this great eternal life. So now we're turning to the Gentiles. And what we have here now is the principle 
that there comes a point too of, of being courageous and being bold, but God also doesn't want us to beat our heads against a closed door. If, if, if there's, if there's no interest, because remember the, the, the guy earlier on in the chapter, the proconsul, he invited He wanted Paul and Barnabas to come. He was ready. He had been prepared by the Holy Spirit. His heart was ready to hear. And so they they were invited. They came. But here, a whole different story. These people don't want to hear. So Paul and Barnabas are going, I don't care whether you want to hear or not. We're going to cram it down your throat. No. They said, you know what? You don't want to hear it? We'll turn to those who do. We'll focus on the people that want to hear the word of God rather than trying to chase after the people that don't. And can I tell you very quickly, that's a principle I try to operate the oasis on. We're not going to chase people that, that down the street and try to somehow do whatever we can, stand on our head to get people to come. But what we will do is those who want to come and want to be here, we'll, we'll give you everything we got. We'll give you it all. I'll I'll give you my best effort. But God doesn't want me to spend time chasing people, but to focus on the ones that want to be here. And then he goes on to say, verse 47, this is what the Lord has commanded. I have appointed you to be a light for the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So notice verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading through the entire region. The Jews incited the God-fearing women of high social standing and the prominent men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and threw them out of their region. And as they left, notice what happened. They shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. Shaking the dust off of one's feet meant not to carry the weight of responsibility for them. In other words, it was a way of saying, we're not responsible for your rejection. That's between you and God. That's something, again, we have to remind ourselves as as we minister and serve the Lord. God doesn't hold us responsible for other people's response or lack of it. All God asks of us is to be faithful to Him and faithful to His Word. If a thousand people that we talk to about God reject our witness, God's never going to hold us responsible for that. God's going to say to us one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Because God does not hold us responsible for other people's response. And the example biblically that I use all the time to illustrate this, that I think is the best one in the Bible, is Noah. Noah didn't get one person besides his family to get into that ark. And yet God said, Noah, you're faithful. Noah's in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. And yet Noah preached for 120 years. And on the outside, from a human earthly standpoint, people today would say Noah was a failure. He must have been a terrible preacher. He couldn't get one person to come forward. And yet God said, Noah, I'm not holding you responsible for their response. (laughs) You were faithful to me. You did what I told you to do. That's all I ask. That's all God asks of us. So if someone rejects you, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting the God and the word of God that you're offering them. So if you see a wall up, then move on. There's plenty of other people out there just like Paul and Barnabas did. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That deep sense of well-being within their soul. Mission incomparable. 
And this is just one chapter. This is just the first slice as Paul and Barnabas and others begin to take the message of Jesus Christ further and further outside the nation of Israel. Again, there's days of pain. There's days of great joy. But one thing you can always be sure of, when any human being is willing to place their lives in the hands of the living God, life is greater than we could ever imagine. Because whatever God is going to lead us to do and ask us to do and direct us to do is far greater than we could ever cook up in our own minds for our own lives. His way is best. His will is best. And that's what we see here, happening here in Acts chapter 13. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you that, Lord, as you look down on your people, your eyes are always running to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those, God, whose hearts are focused on you. Because, Lord, it has always been your design to use your people to influence and impact others for your kingdom. God, not that you have to use us, but that you want to. And that you know, God, that the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction that can come to any human being is when a human being places their lives in the hands of God and said, God, it's not my life anymore. It's not my will anymore. It's yours. It's what we sung about earlier tonight. And so, God, I pray that each one of us would say, in sincerity, God, take my life. Let it be, God, consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Use us, God, for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you Sunday.